series on First uh, John that you may know. And while you're doing that, I thought I would ask kind of a gut check type question, okay? If the Super Bowl was on right now, would you be here? I hear some of the guys going, eh, that's a tough one. Okay, well, let me read this passage, and, uh, and then we'll kind of get into it a little bit more detail. We're going to go, start at the beginning, verse 1 through verse 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Join me in prayer. Father God, you have given us your word, and it is significant. It means something. It affects our lives. Lord, please open up the truths of your word to us right now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, you know, often you can tell what somebody's family is by appearances, okay? And there you, here we've got a couple of father-son comparisons. Uh, one at the same age and another one that you might know. Uh, now, I had to pick on somebody here at Lion and Lamb for this comparison, so I chose the largest sample I could find. Uh, and... <laughs> You may know some of these people, and uh, you might see some resemblances there, but you know, even though some of them may look a little different, uh, we also are identified in a family by other things, like our mannerisms, our, the way that we express ourselves, or sometimes even our character. And you may wonder where some of the people in this photo got their strange sense of humor. It's the guy in the back there who just got his head over the bride, okay? I'm sorry, but uh, I'm at fault there. Uh, some of the traits that we acquire we'd like to avoid. Many teens have said, I'm never going to be like my dad or my mom, only to wonder when they're confronted with and reacting to their own teens and they find themselves saying, when did I become my dad or my mom? These traits are usually most obvious to those in our circle of friends, the people who know us well. And that's an important aspect for us to remember, that people who know us can identify to whom we belong. As God's children, we also have certain traits, but those traits 
are really only evident to those with whom we form relationships, to those who know us to some extent. And in 1 John, John describes at least three overarching characteristics of the Father's children. That's right belief, right love, and right behavior. So today what we're going to try to do in our passage is to cover some of the traits or evidences that flow from those basic characteristics. And as we go through this passage, unlike some of the previous uh, messages on this chapter, on this book, we're going to be going through, jumping around a little bit rather than verse by verse so that we can cover these traits, these evidences topically, if you will. John is trying to help us become secure in our faith and be assured of our own salvation so that we can have confidence as we look forward to our eternal residence. So just what are those traits for which we should look in ourselves and for our loved ones so that we can have that assurance? So the traits, the birthmarks, or evidences of his family members are that they first... Believe Jesus is the Christ. Verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You know, in this passage of verse 1 through 5, he begins and ends with similar statements that fall into the category of doctrine called a Christology. We're identifying Christ as the Messiah, as God. And that's what Peter says of Jesus in Matthew 16 when Jesus questions his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give their various responses. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of the living God. Now, what's important to understand here is that the word believes is a present continuous action verb. Now, that's going to bring up a topic with which many have struggled. And the question is whether one who at some point in their life says he believes, he accepts Jesus into his heart, or whatever the words might be, and is that person in fact saved no matter what happens thereafter? As a very young Christian, uh, Steve Ireliff trusted me to take his girlfriend Sally in a gremlin to Colorado in a blizzard for a conference by a campus ministry. And we made it, you might say, even though we, we went off I-70 a, a time or two. And while we were there, what they emphasized was that you, what you want to do, and they were teaching us to go out and evangelize, and we would knock on doors and, and ask people if they wanted to talk about God and answer some questions. And they said, just try to get them to pray the prayer. Well, praying the prayer is a great thing. Great. It's, it's wonderful. Now, is the, the question is, is praying the prayer it? Is that all you need to do? People, Christians, are fond of saying, once saved, always saved. And before you judge, I believe that. I believe that. But I would add the word genuinely before the word saved. 
You and I cannot judge someone else's salvation. It's not our call. However, we should not lull those whom we love into believing that if they mouthed a prayer at some time in the past, they have bought a stairway to heaven. The problem is that we cannot know the heart of another person. So a one-time statement of belief might be genuine and continuous, or it may be something less than that. It's not the question of whether somebody's perfect or whether they're even a, living a very godly life. The question is, does the belief stick? Does the person continue to believe in his or her heart that Jesus is the Christ? What John is really saying here is that one who is believing that initial decision was genuine. In other words, it continues. That person is born of God. Adrian Rogers puts it like this. The assurance of my salvation comes not from the fact that I did trust Christ, but that I am trusting Christ for my salvation. So one who makes a profession of belief then continues life, business as usual, or consistently disobeys what he or she knows to be God's commands, has some pretty strong evidence that he or she is not regenerated, is not reborn, not a creation of new, not genuinely saved, even if that person still attends church, goes through the motions that Christians do, or speaks the Christian lingo. Now, let me be quick to say, this is not about somebody losing their salvation. The question is, were they saved in the first place? I know that there are consequences to what John says here. We can't objectively know what the eternal destiny of another person. That's God's call. But we must determine how we are going to respond to such a person who gives no evidence that they're born of God. Let me ask you this. Is it more loving to assume that one of your family members or a loved one who made a profession for Christ at some time in the past but gives no evidence that they're living for Him now, that they're born again, is in fact saved and just leave it at that, or rather, to gather from the evidence that you're presented that maybe they're not. And to invite them lovingly to consider the claims of Christ. To consider that Jesus, what Jesus meant when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you can ask them and help them understand that forgiveness is always available, just like it was for the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus forgave her while others wanted to stone her. But then he said, now go and sin no more. So we've discussed before that this does not mean that a saved person will never have doubts. It's just that a genuinely doubting Christian 
will do what's necessary to remove those doubts. And because John's goal here is to give assurance of salvation, we keep hammering on this point. So, what is it that we must believe and continue to believe? Uh, well, Charles Spurgeon says it eloquently. It is not a belief about a doctrine, nor an opinion, nor a formula, but belief concerning a person. Do I accept him to be, from now on, the revealer of God to my soul, the messenger of the covenant, the anointed prophet of the Most High? My dear friend, if you can heartily and earnestly say, I accept Jesus Christ of Nazareth to be prophet, priest, and king to me because God has anointed him to exercise those three offices. In each of these three characters, I unfeignedly trust him. Then, dear friend, you have the faith of God's elect. For it is written, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Next, those who are in God's family have the trait that they are born of God. Uh, again, verse 1 and 4. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we read this phrase, born of God, twice in verse 1 and again in verse 4. And it seems clear that this phrase derives from what Jesus said to the Pharisee Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night in John 3. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, being born again, born from above, born of God, or regeneration are all synonymous family traits of the children of God. This is not an occasional or optional trait. It's not an experience resulting from salvation. It is essential to being saved. This is where salvation starts. And Jesus was straightforward when he said, you must be born again in John 3. In other words, if you're not born again, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. Of course, John wants us to know that we're saved. And that requires belief in Jesus, trusting that he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserved to suffer. He satisfied God's perfect justice and righteousness by his perfect love. So being born of God refers to the labor of God in transforming our hearts while, we, while believing in Jesus refers to our response to the good news of the gospel. And these two are intertwined throughout God's word. So being born of God, the universal family trait gives not only the family name of Christian, but a new nature, a new DNA when we become part of God's family. Now, today Christians are being attacked for their beliefs and their values. And what we, our tendency is to point out, you know, it was the mercy of Christians that established hospitals for the sick and the dying. 
it was the care for others that caused Christians to form schools and colleges. All, most of the Ivy League schools were established by Christians because they knew how important it was to educate. It's Christians who are serving and funding many of the causes that we have today. And without Christians, there would have been no anti-slavery movement. And that's all true. That's all good. And while we're to be salt and light, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus did not come primarily to make us good, kind, and nice people. He came to radically make us new people, children in his family. And that's the essential trait of being born of God. Also, the trait of one in God's family is that they love the Father and His family. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, we, well, true Christians, like faith in action, don't we? Like worship, discipleship, giving, service, evangelism. Now these are things we can do and we're called by God and His Word to do those things. However, there is one thing that can be called the sine qua non. That's not French, but Latin. And it means the essential element. The thing without which you would not have what you're talking about. The sine qua non for the validity and the authenticity of all good things that Christians do is love. And in particular, love for the Father. And this is certainly what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, if I do all these wonderful things, but without love, I am nothing. And he concludes, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And it's my opinion that it is the lack of genuine love for the Father. When many ask on the day of judgment, didn't I do many wonderful things in your name, Jesus? And his response is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, these two verses could be called the fountain of love. Uh, starting with the flow from our love for the Father, then shooting out into multiple streams of love for others. And the great Puritan preacher John Edwards described this like this. You may not be able to read this. Let me read it. There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight, and these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment, and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Now, the thing we have to remember is that love does not start with us. We're not the origin of love. We've got to remember that we love because He first loved us. Now, the statement in verse 2 is interesting because some might question the order of thought 
that says that we love others when we love Him and obey Him. But this is exactly the order that we see in Matthew 22 when He was asked about what's the greatest commandment. What did He say? First, love God. Secondly, love others. So if I love God, I keep His commands, which involves loving others. Okay, this is my wholly inadequate and lame attempt to be relevant. I don't understand the hashtag stuff, but I see it all the time. And I think what people are trying to do, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, if I've missed it completely, but I think they're trying to merge certain concepts, which is what I'm trying to do here, okay? So bear with me. There are at least a couple of practical applications of John's construct of love. And first, it ties love in the character of God and obedience. God's love is tied inseparably from obedience. And we avoid the world's concept of love, which is sentimental or emotional or physical. That's what I'm trying to convey by that, these ditties here. But also, our love for God, which guides our love for others, uh, in that we need to see that love involves seeking what is ultimately best for others. And that might seem like a no-brainer until we recognize our tendency to want to do what other people want, what makes them comfortable, makes them feel good, and probably makes us feel good when we know that they feel good. And by the time we finish, we think our mission is accomplished or we're just too worn out to consider what is ultimately more important to them, that is their eternal salvation. It is a good thing to help others, to feed, clothe, and educate them. But if we stop there and neglect eternity, have we really shown genuine love for them? Jesus asked a rhetorical question in Mark 8. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Food, clothing, education, but forfeit his soul. That's a very, very good question. Those in God's family also obey His commands. Verses 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. So while loving God and obeying God are two separate acts, John knew that these two are inseparable. You cannot love God without obeying Him. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, obedience is kind of a heavy word. It can be distasteful to some, like rebellious teens and, frankly, some adults. It may seem like slavery or, at minimum, do I have to drudgery. And, you know, when you think about the commandments of God, it brings visions of stone tablets and morality and law. Not really light stuff at all. However, John introduces us to a concept that is liberating. Somehow, the Father's commands are not burdensome. How so? Well, before 
we were born again, we either hated God or at least we ignored him. But after salvation, that new birth, we got a new nature, a new perspective on life, new priorities, passions, affections, values. And out of gratefulness for saving our unworthy souls by the sacrifice of his son, we love God above all and desire to please him. We please him through our worship, certainly, but also by learning and doing what he tells us to do. That's obedience. And what to some would be enslavement, to the rest, as true believers, is a delight. Uh, John Piper puts it this way. What you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. David said, I delight in your commands which I love. And there's several other passages there out of the Psalms which say the very same thing. We said earlier that loving God and obeying God are two different acts but inseparable. Love gives the motivation to obey, but his commands tell us how to love. The most concise description that I can give is it's, it's not an I have to, but rather I want to obedience. Next, those in God's family have the trait that they overcome the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So those born of God continuously overcome and gain victory over the world. You know, John said earlier in 1 John 2 what he means by the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These might be called the weapons of the world. But in addition to love, Christians have another weapon, their faith. It is our faith, John says, that overcomes the world. Now the first thing we can see in verse 4 here is the connection between one, God's sovereignty, that new birth, and two, our responsibility, faith, or belief. Now a little sidetrack here. Evangelicals are so intent on any notion of avoiding any notion of salvation by works that we're hesitant to say or believe that we play any role in salvation. Now it's true. We never deserve. We cannot earn our salvation by doing anything. Yet we still have a role. We must have faith. You've got to believe in order to be saved. Now some theologians or maybe some of the other elders can correct me here, but I can't get my arms around the necessity of our response in belief. Out of our love for Him, faith in Him, and desire to obey Him, we overcome. We've got victory over the world. In essence, we are set free from our enslavement to those passions. The logic goes something like this. Our new birth and faith result in overcoming the world. This is not some scheme or grandiose claim to dominate the physical world 
Rather, John is referring here to overcoming that which before salvation dominated us. The desires or lusts for what we do not have and the pride over what we do have in this world. To be clear here, this does not mean that we will not be tempted. But it's also true, and we know that believers will never be tempted and they'll never be subject to temptation more than they're able to resist, more than is common to man. And God will always provide a way for us to escape and endure temptation. That's 1 Corinthians 10. So the family trait of faith gives us victory and sets us free from our bondage to sin. And finally, those within the family of God have the trait that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, this takes us back to Jesus. Faith is vital, but we cannot simply have faith in faith. We must have faith in the person, Jesus Christ. Verse 1 focused on Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the man who came to save the world. Verse 5 focused on Jesus as the Son of God, a title that's essential because it tells us he was more than just a man. He is a man and God at the same time. He is the God-man. And that the trait that identifies one in the Father's family is the belief that Jesus not only is the Christ, the Messiah, but he's a member of the Godhead, the Trinity, and that Jesus is the only man who ever walked the earth who can make that claim. This is not a one-time belief or decision. Believes in this situation is also in the present continuous sense and therefore requires continuous action. This is also a personal belief, meaning no other person can believe it for you. I don't acquire it at birth from my earthly parents or from my spouse or from the pastor, the priest, the minister, or any other clergy. I must own it myself. Likely the most well-known salvation verse of our time is John 3.16. You all know that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That good news, the gospel, continues in the next verse. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But believers and unbelievers would be wise to read on. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Of course, we all like the good news of salvation, but there are two sides to every coin. Without the bad news or negative consequences, there can be no good news. People who call themselves agnostics, they try to sit in the middle. They say, I don't know. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not committing either way, uh, and so I'm not responsible. The problem with that is that it defies a law of logic called the law of the excluded middle. Either one believes and is not condemned and is saved, or you don't believe and you are condemned and you're not saved. 
You can't sit in the middle. And that bad news is actually not all bad because it's just reality. It tells us, because there's bad, that there really is, in reality, good and righteousness and holiness. And when our lives are held up against the purity of God's holiness and righteousness, no matter how many good things we have done or that we may do in the future, if we're honest about ourselves, we know that on our white robe there's a great big stain of sin which sticks out greater than a sore thumb. All of us fall short of God's perfect righteousness. And we know that because there's a thing called justice, getting what we deserve. Man's justice is imperfect, but God's perfect. What do we deserve under God's perfect justice? All of us deserve condemnation. But God does not want us to be condemned. So he sent his son into the world to take our condemnation upon himself. Jesus suffered and died in our place to satisfy God's perfect justice and pay the price for our sins. That's what we call mercy. Not getting what we deserve. But why did he do that? Because he loves us. In fact, he loves us first before we loved or even obeyed him. He did it so that we might be saved and spend eternity in his presence. And this is what we call grace, getting what we do not deserve. Nothing more important. There's nothing more long-lasting than this eternal question. So, the question is, are you a child of God? Are you a member of his family? Do you have the traits of his family? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who came to take away the sins of the world? Are you born of God? Do you love the Father and His family? Do you obey His commandments? Do you overcome the lust and pride of the world? And do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If you're sure of your family and your salvation, then the important thing for you to remember is that only those with whom you form a relationship will really know you and those traits. Relationships with unbelievers is the most effective way to bring them to Christ and into his spiritual family. If you're unsure, if you have doubts, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved, but you should make sure, you should do whatever's necessary, you should talk to others and figure out what's the source of your doubt and deal with it and become assured. Why would you want to live in doubt about such a question? If you're sure that you do not have these traits, that you're not a member of his family, at the risk of offending you, may I ask you a personal question? You don't answer now, you just, I'm asking this for you to think for yourself. Is there anything holding you back from accepting the free gift of salvation through Christ other than your pride? 
You're not born again into his family by living in America, by going to church, or joining a church, or even doing good things in Jesus' name. All it takes is your genuine belief, your faith in Jesus and what he did for you and me on the cross, and your love for the Father and your love for others. So, if you know you're not in that category, or if you have doubts, please come, come talk to me or one of the other leaders, and let's just talk about it. We can't make you anything. We can try to answer your questions. But you need to wrestle with this issue if there's any question in your mind. I uh, failed to create a slide for this, but uh, as the worship team comes up, I'm going to read to you a little bit out of Isaiah 53. If you go ahead and stand. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord God, thank you for bringing us your word through the apostle. Lord, help us to recognize those traits. Help us to live those out. To have genuine belief right now and forever. Lord, we pray that you would be with anyone here who has doubts or who knows they're not in your family, that they would have the courage to do something about it. Lord, we praise you, and we know that you love us more than anything. Otherwise, you would not have given us your only son to pay the price for our sins. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the assurance that we can have that we will spend eternity with you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.